Here we go, loopy loo. Here we go, loopy light. Here we go, loopy loo. All on a Saturday night. Hi, this is Luby with Luby's Lullabies podcast. I'm sorry again, there's been a bit of a delay between my recordings, um, but I've been reading books and not all of them I want to discuss really. However, there's a book here that was actually, I thought, pretty good. It had me um, certainly intrigued and it's called The Serial Killer's Wife and it's by Alice Hunter. And let me just tell you a very short um, thing about her, about Alice Hunter. And it says that after completing a psychology degree, Alice Hunter became an interventions facilitator in a prison. Here, uh, she was part of a team offering rehabilitation programs to men serving sentences for a wide range of offences, often working with prisoners who committed serious violent crimes. Previously, Alice Alice had been a nurse working in the NHS, that's the National Health Service in the UK. She now puts her experiences to good use in fiction. The serial killer's wife draws heavily on her knowledge of psychology and the criminal mind. So there's a bit of background about her, which I think is pretty um, useful in letting you understand what the book um, has to offer and where it's going and a little bit of insight into the characters. I'm going to actually um, just read you a little bit about uh, the book itself. So Beth and Tom Hardcastle are the envy of their neighbourhood. They have the perfect marriage, the perfect house, the perfect family. When the police knock on their door one evening, Beth panics. Tom should be back from work by now. What if he's crashed his car? She fears the worst, but the worst is beyond imagining. As the interrogation begins, Beth will find herself questioning everything she believed about her husband. They're saying he's a monster, and they're saying she knew. Ooh, that's a spooky background to the story. Um, And I'll read you, um, I'm going to read you the whole chapter because it's quite long, um, but I'll read you a little bit about the first chapter in the book. And it is, um, here we go. Um, Oh, I'll have to read it from the beginning. It doesn't make sense otherwise. So this is chapter one. It's called Now. So obviously it flicks backwards and forwards in time, um, like a lot of books do nowadays. I'm half relieved, half annoyed when I hear the insistent knocking on the front door. Poppy has only just settled after her third reading of The Wonky Donkey. I've promised her repeatedly that Daddy will definitely be home to give her a goodnight kiss. It's gone eight, two hours past her usual bedtime. Daddy's here, she says, her aquamarine eyes springing back open, all sleepiness evaporating. And it seems he can't be bothered to use his key. I sigh, rising up from the Disney princess bed. You close your eyes again, my poppet, my poppy poppet, and I'll send him up in a minute. I run my index finger, finger along the bridge of her tiny button nose to the tip. I dash down the stairs, unconsciously bobbing under the low oak beam, ready to fling the door open and shout at Tom for his lateness and lack of consideration. But at the same time, I want to throw my arms around him. He's never late back from work, and I've been winding myself up, thinking something bad must have happened to him. I've tried convincing myself his train was delayed, or he's been caught up in traffic on the way back from Banbury Station, having to commute from Lower Tew to central London, and back every day isn't the quickest of journeys. But if that had been the case, he'd have called to let me know he was running late. He wouldn't let his little poppy down. 
He loves hearing her delighted squeals when he does the daft voices. It's something I clearly haven't mastered, given the number of times she made me try again to get it right. I unlock the solid wooden door and take a steadying breath. There's no need for me to be mad at him. He's late, that's all. Doesn't matter if he's woken Poppy up. He'll happily settle her when I reheat his dinner. Don't shout at him. I swing the door open. Why haven't you got the key? The scolding words are out of my mouth before I even realise. It's not Tom. Oh, um, sorry, I was expecting my sentence trails off. My heart tumbles in my chest. Good evening, Mrs Hardcastle, is it? One of the two men says. They stand shoulder to shoulder at my doorway, obscuring the view outside. I can't see the vehicle they've arrived in, but given their smart suited appearance and the fact they know my name, I instinctively know they're police. Yes, I stutter. My limbs tremble. I was right. Tom's had an accident. I grasp hold of the edge of the doorframe, closing my eyes tight. My breaths are coming fast and shallow as I wait for the inevitable. We need to speak with Mr Thomas Hardcastle, please, the man who looks at me to be in his, in his fifties, with hair greying at the temples and thinning on top, opens a leather wallet and flashes a badge at me. I'm Detective Inspector Manning from the Metropolitan Police, and this is a colleague from Thames Valley, Detective Sergeant Waters. His words fly off my head as relief floods through me. If they're asking to see him, they're not here to tell me he's been killed. He's not here. He's late back from work. I thought you were him, actually, I say, my voice now more controlled. What's it in connection with? I frown, suddenly aware D.I. Manning is encroaching on the threshold of my cottage. The other detective, whose name I've already forgotten, has stepped back and is now strolling around my front garden. Manning doesn't respond. Can I help? Irritation is creeping in now. What do they want? We'll come in and wait, he says. He turns to the detective, who's now back by his side. Waters, check the back first, he demands in his gruff voice. I log his name in my memory this time. I don't feel I have a choice about letting them in to wait, despite my apprehension at allowing two men inside my home at this hour when I'm on my own. As if I'm sensing my unease, D.I. Manning asks if I want to call the station to confirm their official. I give him a nervous laugh, say it's fine, and open the door wider. I hear Poppy calling from the bedroom and shout, I'll be up in a minute, sweetie, up the stairs. Go on in there. I point towards the kitchen and follow behind D.I. Manning as he walks. His stride is long, purposeful. I check my mobile. No missed calls, no text from Tom. Where the hell are you? I slip the phone into my trouser pocket. <clears throat> Can I offer you a cup of coffee or tea? Yes, thank you. Tea, black, no sugar. My mind works overtime as I put the kettle on and take two mugs from the kitchen dresser hooks. You didn't answer me. What is this about? I attempt to keep my voice light, a curious tone, not a demanding one. Just a few questions at this stage, he says, sitting heavily at my large oak farmhouse table. It was one of my favourite buys when we first moved here two years ago. I'd wanted to embrace the change, so we'd gone from modern London furniture to the rustic Cotswold cottage look. My pulse quickens at D.I. Manning's choice of words at this stage. Oh, questions relating to... Before he can answer me, the back door into the kitchen rattles. I open the upper part of the barn-style door. D.S. Waters is there. He's obviously been checking the perimeter of the cottage. Do they think Tom is hiding? That I'm hiding him? 
Something close to panic rises inside me as my imagination begins to run wild. I swallow hard, trying to push it back down. I let Waters in and ask if he wants a drink. He doesn't speak, just shakes his head, a piece of sandy brown hair, brown hair flopping over his forehead with the motion, which he silently brushes aside with his forefinger. If they're trying to put me on edge, they're doing a great job. You say your husband is late back from work. Do you have any idea where he is? He commutes to London Monday to Friday. He works in banking for Moore and Wells. I can't think of what else to say, so I stop talking. Have you tried calling him? I did earlier, just before putting our daughter to bed, but not since, no. Could you try again now, please? My fingertips shake as I attempt to press Tom's name on the last number style display. I accidentally press Lucy's instead and have to quickly cancel the call. On the second try, I hit the right contact. It rings twice, then goes to voicemail. Christ, he must have diverted it. I'm about to try again where I hear the front door. It's Tom, thank God. Now whatever this is can be sorted out. Tom, where have you been? I rush up to him, pulling him towards me slightly, taking in a slightly sour smell. He isn't wearing his suit jacket. He must have left it in the car. I whisper in his ear, some detectives are here and they want to talk to you. I pull away from him in time to see his face go pale. His peacock blue eyes flicker with what looks to me like fear. Anxiety gnaws at my stomach. Mr Thomas Hardcastle, D.I. Manning, is standing now is standing now as we walk back into the kitchen, his badge outstretched as he approaches Tom. Detective Inspector Manning, Metropolitan Police. I see Tom's Adam's apple, Bob, as he swallows. Yes, how can I help, Tom says, glancing at me before returning his attention to the detective. Did I catch a tremor in his voice? We believe you might be able to assist us with a murder inquiry. Ooh, ooh, that's chapter one. That's chapter one. And believe me, it does intrigue you as it goes back and forth in time to him, to Tom and to her and to um, present day and previous days. So I'm going to leave you with that intriguing thought. And this, again, is called The Serial Killer's current book I'm reading which is another intrigue but all for now this is Luby at Luby's Lullabies podcast thank you for listening